Hey, podcast listeners, Caleb here. Just a quick word about this episode, and that is it is set in postbellum America. In other words, after slavery and the Civil War. So while this episode isn't about slavery per se, the events we discuss happened in the immediate aftermath of slavery. And it goes without saying that slavery, the antebellum era, and the postbellum era can be difficult topics to discuss and hear about. And that's putting it mildly. Anyway, that's all we wanted you to know. Here's the show. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the criminal masterminds are undone because they made a typo on an invoice or decided to take a long weekend. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite, back from a a long weekend. (laughs) Was it a nice long weekend, Greg? It was. Well, you know, the Christmas Christmas holidays had some some days off. Right, right. This, this, This is our first show of 2024, so I guess... Happy New Year's in order. Yeah, Happy New Year. Let's make sure that for our first episode of the new year, we took we just pick a very serious topic for our for our yuck yuck show about uh, about fraud. About fraud. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, um, should we uh, read a review? Yeah. I know you. Like it. Let's I know, do it. I know I, you. Like it. I love listening. Is this a one star or a five star? Just this is a five star. Ooh, nice. It's five star. Yeah. Nice. Um, and this comes from stars and reviews on apple podcasts and they write quote fun and interesting i love listening to this podcast it quickly became my go-to podcast beating out the true crime ones i'm still working toward my cpa and in the phase of getting those extra 30 college credits this podcast has saved me when i have nothing left to say on the umpteenth discussion board post of the day i rehash something i learned on the podcast loosely tie it back to the classwork and then tell all my classmates to listen to oh my fraud works every time end of quote that is um that's a okay review wouldn't you say greg i i'd say that's a great review but also uh i just want to check with you to make sure it's not just me but are they saying that they use the content from our fraud podcast to cheat on their homework it kind of sounds like they're using a fraud <laughs> podcast to commit fraud in their discussion I, I, board homework i think I, I i'm not I, I don't feel comfortable speculating, but um, since you pointed out, I kind of want it to be to, to be that. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I mean. gotcha. gotcha. Well, well. Regardless, uh, I do dig it whenever people tell their classmates or coworkers or friends or family members to listen to the show. So thanks, uh, stars and reviews for getting the word out. Also, uh, listeners, just wanted to make sure you knew that uh, Caleb and I, we do speaking engagements. So if your firm wants us to do some in-house training and it will be clean in-house training, we know how to, we're pros, we know how to turn it on and shut it off. Uh, Or if you want us to give a keynote presentation on ethics or fraud at your conference, uh, just send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com to get more information about pricing and availability. And like I said, we do that stuff clean. As a matter of fact, if you want us to swear at your fucking event, it's going to cost more. It's a goddamn upcharge. Yeah. Got to pay a premium for the fucking swears. You you goddamn do. Yeah. Yeah. So, Greg, I have a question. Yes. 
Are you a history buff? Oh, I yeah, Caleb, I am categorically not a history <laughs> okay. history buff. No, I, I mean, I, listen, the the only History Channel show that I've ever watched is Pawn Stars, uh, <laughs> and I'm and I'm pretty sure it's Wait. it's it's light on historical content. I'm just gonna say, is that really on the History Channel? That really, I don't yeah. have, I don't have cable anymore, so I don't even. Yeah, know. yeah, no, that's a that's one of the big shows on the oh, History wow. Channel. And okay. that, which is why that's the one that I've watched. Um, but, but I have to say, I mean, history buff, I'm not like anti-history, uh, yeah. because that's not a thing to be anti-history. Is it, is it I, not? I got, that'd no. be a weird thing to be against. I don't think that you're going to find anybody that says, you know what I hate is the past. <laughs> so, uh, if it wasn't even, past, even hearing about it here. Right. I don't. And again, I, cause I think. Because you asked if I was a history buff, yeah. Do I, do I enjoy history? Sure. One of my one of my top items that I asked for uh, on my Christmas list just this past Christmas was uh -huh. a book on the history of Hawaii. Uh, oh, so so I, I mean I I will delve into it, but I can't say that I'm a, a history uh, buff. I'm curious about stuff, and I love a good story. And history has a, a lot of good stories. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to give too much away, but I'm pretty sure history is nothing but stories, stories so right? you know so i like i like a good story yeah His, historical yeah. or otherwise so yeah today's episode is a story from a time in u.s history that was a time of progress and rapid change but also fraught with violence civil unrest racism and even a disputed presidential election and no i am not talking about present day <laughs> i kind of gave yeah. that away in the well, opening i suppose right. but it is kind of spooky how much Everything you said could be applied to like right now. It's all very cyclical. You know? Yeah. Uh, this story is from a long time ago, uh, but not that long ago when you think about it. Today's story is from the Reconstruction Era. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, POTUS, if you like, issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st of 1863. And what did that do? I'll tell you what it did. It changed the legal status of more than three and a half million enslaved African Americans in the Confederate state from slave to free. And just for clarity, Abraham Lincoln had been killing vampires for over 25 years at this point. Uh, and like I said, I'm not a history buff, but I watched the 2012 documentary, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, so I'm not an idiot. Anyway, this was the middle of the American Civil War, mind you, and so it's not as though slave owners throughout the Confederacy were all like, oh, Abe said to let these guys go free. Okay, hey, everybody, uh, get out of here. Uh, no, the Confederacy obviously was fighting the Civil War because they wanted to keep slavery, but what the Emancipation Proclamation did was it allowed any escaped slave that made it to the Union states to be permanently free. The states in the rebellion obviously weren't going to abide by that, so the actual literal end of slavery was more of a process rather than just a single moment in time. Yeah, so Greg, I don't know. This seems obvious. Like when in the course of doing the research for this show, this became obvious to me like oh yes i knew that it wasn't like ah oh, today's the day like slavery ended it was definitely like a series of things that had to like 
wind it all up. But I think in the in like in in our in our cultural imagination, like our collective cultural imagination, I think a lot of people just have to think, oh yeah, one day it was just over. Like right. it, I just don't know how well people understand how long and what it took for slavery to like be kind of eradicated in the country. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Well, I can, I mean, speaking from personal experience, uh, the, the whole idea of, of Juneteenth, which is now a federal holiday yes, was something that I didn't even know was a thing till just the right. last few years because for me, like you're saying, I think when all this stuff was presented in school, they're like, yeah, so there was the Civil War. Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. Slaves are free. Uh, let's and then, and then let's talk and about Reconstruction. And then the North defeated the South and yeah, yeah. Uh, everything well, was fine. Know, but that's the thing. I think even that's blurred up where it's almost like the – I think in my mind, the Emancipation Proclamation, I didn't – I don't think I realized that was mid-Civil War. Right. And Which, again, like you said, obviously – with that being the case, there's a whole lot that needs to kind of fall in line before this, even though freedom was proclaimed when freedom was actually uh, enjoyed by those who were freed. Right, right. But uh, speaking of Juneteenth, uh, which uh, it just became a federal holiday recently, uh, that's the holiday where we celebrate uh, the uh, the commemoration of the end of slavery, uh, which was June 19th of 1865. That was the day that Major General Gordon Granger ordered the final enforcement of the Eman Emancipation Proclamation in Texas. But also another layer to the whole emancipation story was the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the amendment that abolished slavery except as a punishment for crime. Uh, that took quite a bit of time also. The 13th Amendment was first passed by the Senate in April of 1864, but then it didn't pass uh, the House of Representatives until nine months later, and then it was finally ratified at the end of 1865, which means that took a full 18 months for, no, more than that, 20 months for this thing to go from, from the beginning to ratification. So again, this is a process that we're talking about. And, and all that was nearly three years after Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and over eight months after he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. With the end of slavery in 1865, the Reconstruction Era had begun. This marked the period of time after the Civil War where America had to rebuild and reunify the nation. This included rebuilding its infrastructure. There had been a pretty big war after all. <laughs> right. There's pro <laughs> probably, probably some damage to some infrastructure. Some, yes, yes. Plenty of fire, as I recall. Yeah. yeah. Um, reintegrating the Southern states into the Union and addressing the social, political, and economic impacts of slavery in American government and institutions. Now, that last bit, specifically the economic impacts of slavery, that is where our story lies today. And when you think about it, three and a half to four million people who had virtually no rights now had the freedom to do anything, to do whatever they could, but where would you even start, right? Like that's kind of a, you know, one one minute your your property of someone else, and the next minute 
you have to fend for yourself. Right. Um, that's a very, I don't know, obviously freedom is better than not. Okay. Right. Let's just, let's state that out at the outset, like freedom is better than not, but you would, you all of a sudden, all of these people are navigating the world in a completely new way. Right. And, and that is, I think that is incredibly hard to kind of imagine like what that must've been like. And that's what these emancipated people had to do is like, they had to figure out how to live in, in the world. Yeah. And, well, they and, were. And, I, I, I mean, again, and this is probably a, a very uh, a, a simple, oversimplified way to think of it. But the way the way that my brain uh, makes sense of it is that the the slaves who were emancipated, they were given theoretical freedom. It's like because, right. like you said, when you're saying they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted, it's like, oh, no, they didn't, though. Right. But, true. So, so it was more it was theoretical. But then. But but just like anything else, like here's the theory and here's how it works in real life, and I think that's what you're that's what you're talking about. Is it's like okay, you, you now now things have completely changed for you in theory, but 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 there's there's so much that you have that you don't even you haven't experienced before, so much that wasn't available to you. There's yeah. a huge learning curve that has to be figured out, and there's stuff that just is only theory and not in reality. Right. To the to the freedom that 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 those people were experiencing. Right. So for example, they virtually had no economic resources or capital. Right. Right. And so like the options that were ava made available to them, like for example, sharecropping, not great. Nope. Right? Yeah, pretty but, I mean, I mean so, some of the way and again, my limited not a history buff, but my understanding of sharecropping is it was kind of like it was almost like let's let's try to reinstitute slavery to some extent <laughs> right right essentially so, but they yeah. had but by by virtue of the law they had to give them something right but it yeah. wasn't much yeah but still so, so so but that small amount of that that was it was still money yeah and 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 then also african americans that served in the union army they had earned they earned wages serving in the army so they put you know, the ones that serve in the army, they would put those wages in military savings banks. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it was those military savings banks that inspired a guy by the name of John W. Alvord. I think it's Alvord. Alvord? Yeah. That's how I'd that's what it looks it. like. Yeah. yeah. He was a congregational minister and he established the Freedmen's Savings Bank to help alleviate some of this socioeconomic stress. Okay, because and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but because you did you did the 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 bulk of the research for this episode, uh, my understanding is that there just wasn't a place for freed slaves to deposit their money. Right. So I don't know. I think well, what they so what happened was Congress established this thing called the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. And the Freedmen's Bureau did all kinds. And again, I'm not a historian, but like in the research that I did, the Freedmen's Bureau did a ton of different things, including like establishing schools and establishing resources and services for all these emancipated people. And one of the other things that they did when they established the Freedmen's Bureau is they also incorporated the Freedmen's Savings Bank, which was also known as the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company. Okay. So they did establish this bank as a part of the Freedmen's Bureau. And there's a whole, you know, there's, there, like I said, there's all kinds of different stuff that was instituted through this Freedmen's Bureau. Right. And, and it was, 
Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, it just, I mean, again, thinking back to just how shitty everything was back then for for the freed slaves uh and and i mean like i'm i'm torn between two things to go well that's cool that somebody was at least honest going hey there's some there's services that the freed slaves need that aren't being given to them even though they're they're now freed people and should have access to them but then also it's i've got to assume that it's it's just because you know, like we said at the beginning, even though uh, the the slaves were freed, people were still being plenty shitty to the freed slaves. Oh yeah. So you know, of yeah. course. So so like I said, fe- feeling very conflicted about this, where it's like, well, that's nice. That that's a good thing that this was set up. But then it's like it's a bad thing that this had to be set up. Right. If, if, right. if that makes like, sense. Like, because you there was plenty of conventional banks just around. Yeah. yeah. And there Ex- were school. Exactly. And there were school. There were schools. And there right. were places for them to work and all those kinds of things. But like you say, you know, with, with the era of reconstruction, like it's not like, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's like, it's not like slavery ended in one moment where somebody like, like they, they threw their arm down. It's like, it's done. Right. Right. And so it, same thing with, in the post-slavery world, it's like it's not like racism just stopped in 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 one fell swoop. It's like right. okay, everything right. is fine now. Exactly. No, like there was all kinds of things at work to work against to to con- to continue to marginalize these emancipated the emancipated slaves. Right. So so yeah, the Freedmen's Bureau was something that that was that was that was something that the government did that the federal government did right and, and, and that's and that's the the tragedy of this just to make sure that it's that that it's clear where we're coming from also is this by no means is is what you just said us saying oh yeah but racism solved now so because <laughs> right which which is weird that that even has to be said because there there are prominent politicians right now who are making that case it's like yeah racism's done and yeah and i and and for you know the two the two uh podcast hosts of this show you and me we're definitely not arguing that by any no, stretch. no 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 anyway Friedman's savings bank was to provide banking services specifically taking deposits through its branches for the newly emancipated people and communities across the nation Friedman's bank opened for business on april 4th 1865 in new york city Friedman's Bank quickly became a success. Within just a few years, the bank had 19 branches and 23,000 depositors, virtually all of whom were black Americans. Uh, Churches and other institutions, such as Howard University, which was established in 1867, uh, had accounts with Friedman's Bank as well. Ultimately, 37 branches were established and over 100,000 people opened accounts with Friedman's Bank. Uh, according to a history of Friedman's Bank uh, on the U.S. Treasury Department website, most of the deposits at the bank were small, less than $60. But keep in mind, 60 bucks way back then is equivalent to about 1200 bucks today. Oh. So s- small, but not tiny. Right. Because, I mean, how many times have you heard recently that whole thing that, uh, you know, 60% of American households can't handle a $400 Oh, emergency emergency payment. expense so, yeah, yeah right so so again not it, it wasn't not, it sounds like nothing but but if you if you adjust for inflation it, it, it was still still not not humongous deposits but not not uh, immaterial also 
Right. Um, here's here's a quote from that from from the U.S. Treasury Department website. It says uh, people could open an account with as little as five cents and accounts with at least one dollar earned interest. People would often put their money in the bank during the summer and autumn and take it out in the winter and spring when their supplies would be running low. People also use their savings to buy bigger items such as homes, land, farm animals, and tools. So it sounds to me, if I may stop you. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like it's having, it is it is doing what they wanted it to do. Sounds like a bank working like a bank. Working like a bank, right? Yeah. Can you put your money in there to make sure it's safe and take it out when you need it. Yep. Like banks do. So also by 1874, nearly half of the bank's employees were African American. Uh, most were cashiers. Uh, the t- which at that time cashier was actually the top official at a branch, uh, interestingly enough. As for Friedman's bank's governance, it was similar to many conventional banks uh, in that all of its original trustees were white men. Uh, in this case, uh, there were 50 of them, 50 white dudes running the bank. Uh, so not a lot has changed in 150 hey, years. I was going to say, it feels, feels feel, probably pretty close. Bank Corp is uh, yeah. very similar in their boardroom today. Oh, uh, man. We're going to hear from, we're going to hear from some, uh, from, from some banking, banking, banking trade uh, groups. It's like, I'll have you know. Yeah, we'll hear from some banking trade groups. The American Bankers Association will be up our ass. Right. Uh, One big way that Friedman's bank governance was a little different from other banks, its charter said that it would be allowed to invest the deposits in, quote, stocks, bonds, treasury notes, or other securities of the United States, but it was forbidden from making loans. So yeah, it was a bank working like a bank instead of, but just not in the one way that all of us think of banks working as bank. Just a, it was just off by one, one offering. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, I think this really, I don't recall this being made explicitly clear in the, in the research, but they really just did want to focus on taking deposits. Right. And that, I don't know, they were, there were some concerns about, you know, loans that, you know, they maybe, maybe their heads were in the right place about not wanting to offer loans. But as you're about to tell us, yeah, it didn't last long. Yeah. The, that, but the prohibition on loans didn't last very long. In 1867, Friedman's Bank moved its headquarters from New York City to Washington, D.C., and new trustees were quickly installed in 1868, trustees including John Alvord, who we already mentioned, and Henry D. Cook, the head of the bank's finance committee, started pressuring Congress to amend the bank's charter to allow them to make loans. And they got their wish a couple years later. Congress passed an amendment to the bank's charter in 1870. And from then on, Friedman's Bank could make them loans. Despite its early success, there was some activity happening at Friedman's Bank that was definitely 
not in the best interest of its depositors. A lot of this, uh, a lot of the stuff that we found for this episode comes from a book published in 1976, written by a historian by the name of Carl Osthaus, uh, who I I tried to contact actually. I, oh. I I was surprised to find that he was still he's a professor emeritus at Oakland University. Okay, and I wrote him a very nice email, but. Since he's an emeritus, he maybe he doesn't check his email very often. <laughs> maybe not. But in any case, maybe not every day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he wrote a book entitled "Freedman Philanthropy and Fraud: A History of the Freedman Savings Bank," and that's where a lot of these details come from. For example, the book describes how trustees were not required to give quote any security for the faithful discharge of their trust. End of quote. Many trustees had little to no involvement with the bank. Some even denying that they had agreed to join the board. Okay, um, and That's, the charter <laughs> that strikes me as very weird. Weird, yeah. And the charter lacked any penal clauses to hold trustees personally liable for bank solvency. Now, one thing that you know, I think in kind of contemporary business, everybody knows that a board of directors is ultimately where the buck stops with a business, right? When, yeah. Especially when you think about big business, right? Yeah. People think, oh, the CEO is the person in charge, and like, yeah. The CEO works at the pleasure of the board. Okay. Right. So like, you know, the board is really where, you know, that, that is the group of people who, who run a, uh, and govern a, a, a business, a, a corporation. If, yeah. if, if you like, yep. in this case, it is very strange to me. And, oh, by the way, and that board, you know, they, they are, they are liable for their decisions should things go terribly, terribly wrong. Like the, you know, boards of directors get sued all the time right. um, yep. for, for doing things that people don't like anyway. Right. Um, it is very strange to me that these trustees virtually had no liability. Yeah. No exposure, no exposure for, for bad decisions for bad decisions and running this bank. So uh, red flag, red flag. Yeah. Probably even in the 1860s, that would have been a red flag. You'd but think so. Maybe. I don't know. Again, yeah. Greg and I aren't historians. But in any case, there was also evidence that the bank's management misled depositors about a supposed government guarantee, interest payments, and the use of deposit funds. Quote, during its initial years, the bank marketed itself widely to attract deposits, distributing bank pamphlets at churches and Freedmen's Bureau schools advertising in local newspapers and holding public meetings at churches, beneficial societies, and the bank's branches. Its advertisements often depicted the bank as having the banking, excuse me, the backing and guarantee of the federal government, but as a private corporation, it had no guarantee. For example, an article in the semi-weekly Louisianan stated, quote, there is no possibility for loss of loss, excuse me, for the reason that the government of the United States is responsible for every dollar deposited. The bank promised its depositors 6% interest, but often play, paid a lower rate. I hate that Not so good. much. That is, that is bad banking, Greg. That it, is bad well, banking. Well, and and it's one of those things where you'd go, I mean, so many times when we, when we talk about stories of fraud, yeah. you have these... You have these uh, promises that are too good to be true. Yes. One of those, one promise that seems too good to be true is when someone says, there is no possibility of loss. Of loss, yes. That sounds too good to be true. But then yep. you follow it up by saying, because this bank that was 
ostensibly established by the United States of America is also backed and guaranteed by the United States of America, then you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, there's no kind of like, is that this is, I'm sure this was before FDIC was a thing, but oh, it's yeah, kind of like, before. Oh, oh, we got FDI, it's basically FDIC insured. So good. Let's, uh, let's throw our money in there. We're, yep. It'll be safe. Yep. Just for the record, FDIC was founded in 1933. There you go. Quite a bit later. A lot later. Right. Thanks, thanks Great Depression. You bet. So beyond these questionable operational practices, there were some questionable related party transactions too. Your favorite and yeah. mine. <laughs> Everyone's yes. again red flag. Uh, absolutely. For example, Henry D. Cook, one of the guys we mentioned earlier, who helped pressure Congress into changing the bank's charter to allow loans. His brother was Jay Cook, the founder of Jay Cook and Company, a prominent investment bank. Henry was also a partner at Jay Cook and Company. Okay, okay so he was so he was on the board for Freedman's Bank. And Correct. he was a partner in the Southern Bank. He was a trustee and he was a partner at J. Cook and Company. Okay. J. Cook and Company was notable because it helped underwrite the Union War effort. So that turned out to that turned out fine for them. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, it sold hundreds of millions of bonds during the war. J. Cook had a lot of influence in establishing the national banking system that came about in the 1860s, including a branch in Washington, D.C., and another in Philadelphia. And since Henry Cook was the head of the finance committee for the Freedmen's Bank, he decided to put a lot of Freedmen's Bank's deposits in the first Washington National Bank where he was, ostensibly, the president. Okay. That bank paid Freedmen's Bank 5% interest on its deposits, while Freedmen's was paying its depositors 6%. Which, uh, you know, for the uninitiated, that is unsustainable. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Where, you know, that other 1% just doesn't yeah. magically materialize. Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, yeah, that's bad banking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not all. After the bank charter was amended to allow loans, one of the loans made was for $50,000 to the Seneca Sandstone Company, which was owned by the Seneca Quarry. This loan was secured by the company's, quote, worthless bonds, end of quote, according to Osshouse's book. Who approved that loan? Henry Cook, who also was a board member of the Quarry. After the Civil War, Jay Cook and company invested heavily in railroads uh, railroads back then were kind of in the same status as uh, high-flying tech companies are nowadays. And in 1870, the Northern Pacific Railroad made Cook & Company its exclusive bond agent, but Cook & Company was shitty at being a bond agent and had trouble <laughs> selling Northern Pacific Railroad's bond and therefore wound up owning about 75% of those bonds that they had a hard time selling. Uh, to make matters only slightly worse, because that was already pretty bad, Cook also issued notes against its expected return 
on the sale of the Northern Pacific bonds. So it made loans based on their performance of selling bonds that they couldn't sell. And so therefore it's no surprise that they couldn't raise enough money to meet their obligations. As word got out about Cook's increasingly leveraged position, investors began pulling their money, uh, as did Cook's depositors, which caused a run on their bank in September of 1873. And this in turn caused stock prices to drop, which in turn caused more bank runs and business failures. And hence the panic of 1873 began. And everyone remembers the panic of 1873, right? It was right after the terror of 1872 and the pants shitting of 1874. So we've got railroad projects failing left and right. And wouldn't you know it, Friedman's Bank had some exposure to that. In Professor Osthaus's book, he noted that Friedman's Bank invested in the bonds of the Union Pacific and Central Railroads via Henry and Jay Cook and Company, of course, in violation of its charter as early as 1869. This exposure led to runs on some of the Friedman's branches in 1873. Following the panic, in an attempt to restore confidence in the bank among the African-American community, there was a significant change in the leadership of the bank. Friedman trustees replaced the founder and president, John Alverd, in March 1874 with Frederick Douglass. Yes, the Frederick Douglass. Douglass even invested $10,000 of his own money in the bank. But when Douglass discovered the true condition the bank was in, he quickly resigned, saying he, quote, was married to a corpse. In June 1874, he recommended that Congress shut down the bank. Friedman's bank closed officially on July 2nd, 1874. In the process of winding the bank down, officials found that the actual value of its assets were far lower than what its books said. The report of the commissioners of the Friedman's Savings and Trust Company reported that they amounted to less than 2% of the bank's total liabilities. (laughs) That is bad. (laughs) So basically, if they collected all the money that was owed to them... They would have 2% of what they owed to everybody else. I guess that's, that's, that's that's beyond, that's beyond horrible banking. Yeah. That's, I don't think that can be accounted for by lending your money at 5% or borrow, you know, and paying five and earning six. Yeah. Yeah. Or earning six, earning five five. and paying six. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're bad bankers too. Yeah. We're just what it is. Not (laughs) are we only. Only, not only are we not historians, we are not bankers. Not bankers. Nope. I, l- listen, that seems, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing historical note that Frederick Douglass yeah. was created, was put in as the president of the Freedman's Bank. Yes. Uh, but also it, the, the way the story reads it sounds like he was bamboozled into taking that position. He was. By all accounts that I that I saw that is he was misled into taking that job. Like he knew that the bank was in some distress and he wanted it to succeed. Okay. But they were they hid a bunch of the problems from him. Oh. And so that's so he he was he took the job I think under false pretenses. Awesome. And so yeah, just fantastic, right? 
And like one of the things I read is a lot of what a lot of the trustees wanted is they they because they knew the bank was going to fail. They wanted a black person to be at a head of the bank so they could scapegoat them. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll so we'll trick Frederick Douglass. Yeah. In becoming yeah. the face of the bank. Yeah. So that when it fails, we can point at him for the failure of the bank. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't work. I mean, like it's, it's clear. It's clear that he's like, yeah, uh, yeah. He, he found out, and he's like, uh, no, nope. I quit. And um, <laughs> by the way, shut it down. It's yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lost cause. So yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty uh, unsavory stuff. Yeah. Depositors suffered more than three million dollars in losses. That's over eighty million in today's money. Uh, depositors who received payouts got far less than they were owed. Small depositors, the majority of the more than 60,000 depositors at the time of the bank's failure, received little to no funds at all. As for any accountability for the bank's failure, there was none. A congressional investigation recommended that Henry Cook and others be indicted for their role in the failure of Friedman's bank, but no one was ever charged. In his book, Black Reconstruction in America, 1860 to 1880, W.E.B. Du Bois the historian and civil rights activist wrote, quote, no more extraordinary and disreputable venture ever disgraced American business disguised as philanthropy than the Freedmen's Bank, a chapter in American history which most Americans naturally prefer to forget. Greg, Kite, did we learn everything? Yes, we did. We learned a lot. (laughs) We did. No, this is, uh, yes, I learned tons uh, because everything in this episode is brand new to me. I I, I mean, the the quote that you read from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, yeah, yeah, that Americans naturally prefer to forget. Yeah, they did. And so they never taught me about this. I I feel- Me neither. I feel the same way about this story because, yeah- I mean, again, that that quote was the that was the that was the cherry on top of this story, where it was like it, it was disguised as philanthropy, philanthropy, yes. But it ended up hurting, dr- drastically hurting all the people that it was supposed to be assisting in this great time of need, right. That they had, right. Uh, and and the fact that that's just been extracted from history is bizarre to me and i feel i feel the same way uh that because and we talked about this briefly before we started recording it, it feels the same way <clears throat> when i was watching uh watchmen that the series on hbo yes and and that series starts with a, a reenactment of the the tulsa oklahoma massacre of black wall street yes and i was like what what is what is this fantastical story that they're inserting into american history what what the fuck that actually happened yep and i feel the same way i felt weird then going how did i not know about this why is this completely foreign to me and i feel the same way about the story where it's like this is this is shocking that this isn't part of part of our education yeah and part of part of just what we know uh, as what happened, at least, at least as people who spent a significant part of our, uh, advanced education learning about accounting and finance stuff, right? And why, why is why is this, why are we just learning about this now? Yeah. I, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I will say that, you know, this, this, we discussed fraud in this episode because this is a show about frauds. It's not a history show. Uh, but in the aftermath of the panic of 1873, you know, th- things did not get better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Clearly <laughs> for all these, for all the emancipated people, um, you know, n- and not just those for the depositors of Friedman's bank, but all over the country. And I mean, this all came to head. I mentioned, you know, early in the show that there during reconstruction, there was a disputed uh, presidential election. That was the presidential election of 1876. It was, it was very, very close. It was disputed. As I said, uh, it was the, one of the most contentious elections in American history. So if you think things are bad today, if you think things are bad, they have been bad before. Very bad. And we made it. Is that the, is that the, uh, the inspirational message? I don't know if it's inspirational or not, but I'm just saying like, Hard to feel inspired by the Here, story. Here, here's, here's just to tie this up. In the in the end, Rutherford B. Hayes, he's a Republican from Ohio. He de- he defeated Samuel Tilden, a Democrat from New York, and it was it was because of this infamous political deal. It's known as the Compromise of 1877, um, and it that is the only reason that Hayes became the president because it gave him the presidency in exchange for the removal of federal troops in the Southern states. Right. right. Yeah. I, and see, I, I'm and, pretty, that's ringing a bell. Yeah. Pretty sure I learned that one in my history right. class. And, it, and this this is what ended Reconstruction. So recon, the Reconstruction era really was like what we talked about at the begin near the beginning. It was like it was it was trying to reunify the nature uh, is trying to reunify the nation, rebuild its in- infrastructure and address all of the impacts of slavery in American institutions, both in government and but also in business, the social, political, and economic impacts. Right. That's what right. Reconstru- that was what Reconstruction was going to do. But right. because of this presidential election, because Rutherford B. Hayes wanted to be president, he's like, "You give me the presidency, we'll get we'll we'll get out of your way, South. Right. We'll get out of your hair. We'll get out of your hay." And that that was it. That was that that ended yeah. Reconstruction. And so, Which, and, and it got, it got, it got bad. After yeah. That. Things got, things got bad after one, that. One, there is a silver lining that was pointed out in, in a lot of the research I did. This silver lining was noted in a lot of places. Uh, the, the silver lining is that Friedman's bank uh, is that the records of Friedman's bank are the largest single source of lineage linked African-American records known to exist. Okay. More than 480,000 names. And those records have been indexed by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is because they, they do all that genealogy stuff there in your backyard, Greg. And so they, they indexed all that stuff. And so that, um, that is one of the silver linings because a lot of, you know, prior to that time, those kinds of records weren't kept. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So in any case, Anything else, Greg? Any, yeah, well, I mean, any, I, anything I th- else that you learned? I feel like we pointed out the fraud while we were telling the story. Yeah, where it's the you know it's it's the dealing dealings with your bank where you're 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 giving favorable terms to people and not not doing your diligence in terms of your collateral for right. loans and 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 again like even the the it 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 wasn't just gross negligence you can't you can't get to where your your assets are two percent of your liabilities just by negligence you're 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 intentionally screwing that if you're if you have any experience in any kind of banking meaning do you have a, a 
a checking account, then you could do a better job right. than having 2% of your liabilities yeah. covered by your assets. What's so. pretty fascinating to me is that like, I guess, I, I, I guess banking regulation as we understand it today didn't come for like 60 more years after that. Like the, fa the failure was in the 1870s and like the great depression essentially started in 1929 yeah. and like the securities and exchange act was like 1933, 1934. And like, that's, that was at the same time when like the FDIC was established and like modern bank, like it took an almost three quarters of a century <laughs> for the government to get around saying, it's like, oh, maybe we should put rules around these banks so people don't <laughs> right. get screwed right. Right. when they go out of business. So. Right. Well, and another thing that comes to my mind from the story, just a, a like an like a modern day echo of the Freedman's Bank story, yeah, is when uh, when the PPP loans were were going yes. out, and all of that stuff was the news was everyone struggling with COVID. The government is making money available to you. They're through these PPP loans. Go to your bank, talk to your banker. They'll help you. They'll they'll get you the they'll they'll walk you through it and get you the the money. And and then the the story that I remember coming out after that is that communities of color had a hard time accessing those funds. Yes, because communities of color generally had less had didn't have as strong of banking relationships. Yeah, they were underbanked. The, yeah, underbanked. That was what it was called. And yep. and then looking at this story as part of the history of people of color in this country, no. No shit. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're yeah. underbanked. They got they got fucked hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the first time. Yes. That 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 they got to have a banking relationship. Yeah. So maybe they're gonna be. Yeah, maybe banks aren't for us. That that there's gonna be echoes of that through your family where it's like, I don't put my money in a bank because because I did that once. Yep. And and it and it all just disappeared. Yeah, and it, and one of the other things I found in 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 the research was there's there's scholarship around this precisely that communities of color like the because of the Freedmen's Bank failure there were generations of distrust in banks because yeah. of that banking failure. Yeah. And so like it's been it's been established in the scholarship that this is why and in here we and here we are 150 years later and you talk yeah. about and yeah and it, and it showed it it, it it of course it showed up in ppp loans and idle loans and, and all the rest right. that the communities that needed it didn't get it because they didn't have banking relationships or or, or like you say they were underbanked why didn't yeah. why were they underbanked well you can probably trace it back to friedman's bank you for sure can trace it back yeah uh, it's see i'm the, as has been well established I am no historian <laughs> and I can I can connect those dots. Yeah. Pretty fucking easy. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh remember to share this episode with anyone you know in Florida because they won't learn about this stuff in their public education system. <laughs> and also remember, Abraham Lincoln hunted vampires, which is nice. Uh, but some of his other accomplishments were more important. Much more important. Much more important. If you want to drop us a line, uh, please do send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, if people want to reach out just directly to you, where can they do that? They can find me on LinkedIn. I, you know, why do I even bother? 
I hate it when I, I can't, I can't even, I have nothing clever to say. Uh, <laughs> LinkedIn forward slash forward slash Caleb Newquist or just a slash LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Greg is LinkedIn a place where people can find you. You know, we've been telling people that for a lot of these episodes and I haven't been on LinkedIn for probably two or three weeks now. So good for you. Likely there's a lot of DMS in there that people like going, you said I could get a hold of you here and now where, where are you? Uh, so, uh, I'm fine. Send me an email. Greg at gregkite.com. Really easy. I'm, I'm good with that. Oh, my fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen on Earmark, you can earn CPE. It's a new year. Might as well get started. It's seriously. Why not? Get some CPE. Get the jump on that. Get a jump on that shit. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, oh, my fraud. Oh, my fraud.